Hey, it's Greg, and welcome back to another deep dive episode of the Future Podcast. This one comes from a 2018 live stream we did with acclaimed author Seth Godin. I'm sure you've heard that name before, but if you haven't, you're in for a real treat. This might be my favorite live stream we've ever done, and not just because it's with Seth, but because every moment of the conversation oozes value. People ask some great questions, and Seth, of course, provides some great answers. I'll skip the bullet point intro because I think Chris really nails it once the stream gets going. Now, if you're wondering whether or not you should listen to this episode, the answer is you absolutely should. I think everyone should. Enjoy. What is up, everybody? Today could not have come sooner. As soon as I knew this guest, our next guest coming on the show, I was super excited and here we are. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet, but you're definitely not going to want to miss this episode. So stop what you're doing, drop it, tell a friend, tune in right now, because on our show, we have Seth Godin. I want to say two things before I kind of run through my deck. First is, I'm starting this episode with a little bit of regret and remorse in my heart, because there are more questions I'm going to have than the time permitted to do this. So this one's going to be weird. The second thing is, Seth has done an amazing job of sharing his thoughts, making it visible in written form and doing videos on all that kind of stuff. I'm going to be honest, there's probably no question that hasn't been asked of Seth at this point in time, but I feel like this could possibly be, if I do my job well with the help of Ben Burns and the rest of the team, and you, of course, this could be the best of. So with that, let's jump into it. Let's look at my deck. This episode is going to be epic. How epic? Well, let me tell you some facts about Seth Godin. He's a best-selling author of over, or I'm sorry, of 18 books that have been translated into 35 languages. He's written and spoken on t- topics such as the post-industrial revolution, ways ideas spread, marketing, of course, quitting, leadership, and he's written a bunch of books like Lynchpin, All Marketers Are Liars, slash Tell Stories, Purple Cow, which many of you guys probably know about already, The Dip, Permission Marketing, The Icarus Deception, and tribes he's written a blog post a day every day like forever guys forever that's a lot of posts and because of that he's he's got one of the most popular blogs in the world 2018 he was inducted into the marketing hall of fame he's amassed a tremendous following on twitter over 663,000 followers he's credited as inventing commercial email not spam we can talk about that a little bit more he's also been the first to develop educational games raised something like over $225,000 for a Kickstarter book project. He's created the Alt-MBA. Again, we'll talk about that. And he's described himself as a person who notices things for a living. We like to call him Troublemaker because the things he does and talks about is truly remarkable. Well, who am I talking about? Of course, I already told you. We have Seth Godin on the show, you guys. Please welcome Seth. All right. Seth, my brother from another mother. I've dressed up for you today. I know that you like a little flare of color, so you guys can't see it, but I'm wearing blue glasses, and this is the closest I have to yellow, so my orange tie. I got a little purple trim on my jacket here. Beautiful, beautiful. First of all, thank you for doing this. I know you're a busy person. We're going to spend the next 60 minutes with you, and so I'm going to just dive right in, if you don't mind. Okay, so you did this TED Talk, which really caught caught my eye and attention. It's something that I feel very passionate about. It's felt like you were speaking directly to me, a talk called Stop Stealing Dreams and What is School Really For? And some of the summary notes, just to get you guys caught up to speed, and in case you guys want to, Ben's going to drop the link in the chat box and also in the description below, you guys. So some ideas that are kind of radical to some who don't know anything about Seth. 
he talks about maybe we should do homework during the day and lectures at night. It should be open book, open note all the time. We should be able to take any course anytime and anywhere. And instead of doing mass education, it should be precise focus education. He wants to end multiple choice exams, and instead we should measure experience versus test scores. End compliance as an outcome. You, you talk about resumes and what that's a form of. We'll, we'll get into that. Cooperation versus isolation, and to amplify the outliers, the people on the edge. And teachers should be coaches. We want to create lifelong learners at an early stage and to put an end and death to the famous college. So I'm going to start up and just kind of tee you up for this one because I want to hear you pontificate on this. What is school for? You asked this question a lot in the TED Talk. Right. So the, the core, first, thanks for the great intro. The Thank you very much. Is, we need to ask that question. My mm -hmm. answer isn't as important as every parent, every kid, every teacher asking the question, what is school for? Because my answer might not be right. My answer is two things. Teach kids how to lead. Teach kids how to solve interesting problems. That's it. Because if you know how to lead and you know how to solve interesting problems, you will always be able to find a job. You will always be able to create value and you will never get bored. That's the opposite of what school was for 100 years ago, which is train compliant factory workers to do what they're told and work cheap. And I don't think we need that so much anymore. I think we need the other thing. Mm -hmm. Well, there's an issue that's coming up a lot now with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And it seems like what you're saying is even more relevant today. I got back recently from the Philippines and they're one of the world's largest call centers. And they're already being replaced and displaced in ways that I, I think is going to cause massive disruption in their local economy. Sure. And so this idea of creating obedient, compliant people uh, is, is part of the, the system that was created to teach us in theory. So what are the alternatives right now? Like what would we do differently if we could just start over and design school systems for the economy and the, and the information age we live in? Can you give us some ideas on that, please? Well, let's begin with this. If it's worth memorizing, mm -hmm. it's worth not memorizing because the amount that you can look up online, if you know what to look up, is close to infinity. What's the purpose of knowing how old George Washington was when the Revolutionary War happened? Just look it up. And so we begin with this. Competence is overrated. If we can write down your job, we can find someone cheaper than you to do it. In fact, that the thing we find to do it might not even be a person. So that means we need to teach kids to eagerly do jobs that cannot be written down. And so the pressure in a, in a universe with call centers is top down, we're pushing people to do ever more menial labor and bottom up, we're pushing computers to do that same job. And so people are getting squeezed in mm. between. Them. And the alternative is to be a linchpin to race to the top and to say, I solve interesting problems, problems that no one solved before. If you can look it up, don't call me. I'm the person who can help you if you can't look it up. Wow, that sounds wonderful. But in such a large society, can everybody, is that a realistic endeavor for everybody to be able to solve problems that can't be solved? Or I'm not up? worried about it. I'm not hmm. worried about everybody. If it, if it happens to everybody, that would be fascinating. Come back to me then. I'm worried about you and your kids and those kids and those kids and those kids. That... To get 5 million people to take this leap would be unbelievable. I see. 50 million would be astonishing. So that's the issue is not, you know, it's like when someone says we should eat healthy, 
people don't show up and say, well, what will happen to the Doritos company? Because the fact is you can talk about eating healthy all you want. McDonald's is still going to be busy. Mm-hmm. You do an interesting thing where you ask your audience, and I hope I'm not giving anything away, to everybody to raise your hand as high as possible and they do so. And then you say, raise a little higher and they're able to do that. So why is it that we raise our hand but we we hold back? What is it about us, how we're hardwired or what we're taught that makes us to yeah, I don't pull? think we're hardwired. I think we're brainwashed. Okay. We're brainwashed by the industrial economy. Mm-hmm. So the industrialist, and, and we've known this for 100 years, there's a tension, more than that, Karl Marx saw it. There's a tension between the boss who wants unlimited effort for no money and the worker who wants to do as little as possible. The reason the worker wants to do as little as possible is she knows that the boss is going to ask for more. And we took that model and took it to coaches and to teachers and to the system. And so everyone holds back because they know the boss is going to ask for more. The people who don't hold back are artists. You don't see a playwright saying, I had a really good line I could have put in this play, but I saved it for my next play. That never happens. Mm -hmm. Because when we're doing art, we say, how can I do more? And when we're doing work, we say, how can I do less? That's the difference between art and work. Mm. So if you love what you do, does that make you an artist or is there more to that? I think there's more to it. Mm -hmm. I think it's possible to decide to love what you do. I see. That is. If you're on the chain gang and you know you're going to be there for a year, you could spend a whole year hating what you do, or you could brainwash yourself into loving what you do because why not spend a year doing something you love? What I'm saying an artist does, and a lot of artists I know hate what they do, is you are staring into the void, that you are doing work that might not work. You are doing work without a manual. You are showing up to make change happen in a generous way that you're not sure is going to work. And that's really frightening. Mm-hmm. So if you do things that are risky, that things that might not work, then you're heading towards becoming an artist? I think that's true because mm-hmm. what we got trained to do as compliant cogs in the system was find deniability, find authority, find the established protocol, take good notes and repeat back to the teacher what we learned. And That's not what solving interesting problems are. Mm -hmm. Solving interesting problems is, I don't know the answer to this. Let's figure it out. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the last time we taught a kid how to do that in a typical school. Mm. Now, I don't think you do this often, but you you don't really talk about your personal life too much, your wife. And I believe you have a kid or multiple kids. Yeah, I don't talk about them. It's their life to have, not mine. Okay, so have you been able to incorporate some of your ideas into the way that you parent? Yeah. Can you expand on that a little bit? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Asked and answered. Okay, moving <laughs> on. All right. There's something else that you talk about that I want to just uh, highlight here a little bit in terms of like mentors versus heroes. Can you speak about why you think maybe we don't need mentors so much? Well, so there's this trope, and it's pretty new. Uh, the hustle people. Mm-hmm. Go find yourself a mentor. Right. That mentor will look out for you. That mentor will tail, pull you along. That mentor can change everything. Well, if you can find someone like that, please, by all means. But let's do the math, right? For every successful person in the public eye, there's 2,000 people who want that person to be their mentor. How does that math work? Mm-hmm. Mentors don't scale. The alternative is to find heroes, and they don't even need to know you exist. You can ask yourself, what would Susan do? What would Tracy do? What would Bob do? And use their voice in your head as a compass. 
to help you go on a path. Because heroes are easy to find and they scale like crazy. So before you hide by saying, well, the reason I'm stuck is I don't have a mentor. Maybe what you ought to say is figure out the Shazam method, the, the, the strength of S and the diligence of H and the persistence of A and the insight of Z, whatever heroes you want to assemble as your advisors, go find those heroes and then start. You don't need anyone's permission. Did you come to that thought out of any reaction to people, I imagine, constantly asking you to be their mentor? In fact, it's what prompted the thought, but I mm. stand by it even if no one had ever asked. Me. <laughs> and I'm just curious, uh, uh, as a person who's so visible, who's so prolific in writing and speaking, do, do people just mob you at these talks after you get off the stage? People are generally very respectful, mm. and I'm thrilled at that. Mm -hmm. um, every once in a while, and it's, unfortunately it's happening a little bit more now, people are in such pain that they forget that the other person they're dealing with is a person. Mm. And it's interesting at Disney world, the stuffed animal characters have security guards. And the reason is people were pinching Tigger and Mickey as if, because that other creature is wearing a mask, you're invisible, which is of course not true. Mm -hmm. And often what we do is if there's someone we see, who we know from afar, we feel like there's a, a, an ability to connect with them in a different way. Right. And, and it's not true. So I am super open to having calm, non-anonymous conversations with people. I prefer not to do it by email because it's asymmetrical. Mm -hmm. uh, and most people are really respectful with me. And if they're not, I just have to excuse myself. Mm. And does that happen often that people cross over boundaries and aren't respectful of your no, space? No, not that often. I'm super lucky to be able to do what I do. Mm. I'm not going to. Fantastic. Uh, ben, do, you, do we want to hit the internet yet? Or do you yeah, have questions? Absolutely. All right, give me a, a good, really question, good question, please. All right. So this comes from Jasveer Sidhu. He's asking, what are some daily habits to unbrainwash yourself? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So why was the brainwashing so easy? I mean, it took 12 years, but it works. It works on so many people. Why is that? Because the promise has two pieces, three pieces. Part one, in the future, there's a pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. This is how you will succeed. Promise number two, if you listen to what I say, I will not punish you. And problem, problem, promise number three is, this will make you less afraid. That if you wait to be told what to do, it will make you less afraid. So it's an irresistible set of promises. So the habit, and there's just one, is regularly find generous work that scares you. Not selfish work that scares you, generous work that scares you. And if you can dance with the fear, it won't go away. It will never go away but you can learn to use it as a compass so that when the fear shows up, you can say, Oh, that feeling I'm getting, that's reminding me I'm on the right path. And that is the habit once a day, five times a day, 50 times a day. And this is why I'm so uh, confirmed that everyone should blog every day, even if no one reads it, the act of blogging every day, 
is a generous way to confront your fear. And if you do it for 100 days in a row, you'll be able to look back and see 100 signposts you laid out on the ground to say, here, I made this, I made this, I said this, I gave this, I showed this. Do that 100 times in a row. That's a habit. Mm. Now, you've done things on the edge quite a bit. You've pushed boundaries. You, you've made some tremendous uh, innovations. We talked about the earlier in the opening of the show. I'm curious, what, what do you do today that scares you from time to time? Or are you constantly scared? Well, I'm getting older, so I'm, you know, not as good at scaring myself. So the new book. Oh, fantastic. And the inside is pictures of hundreds of my fans who sent in their picture to be on the inside of the book. Mm-hmm. But I did that once already. I did it inside a tribe, so I knew it was going to work. <laughs> right? So, you know, you hit your 50s and you start doing, you steal from yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, my work is to figure out how to share emotions and stories with people to turn lights on for them. And the part of it that scares me is wasting the privilege, wasting the leverage, wasting the opportunity. So that's why I keep pioneering and pushing new ways to do it and encouraging people to copy me. Because mm-hmm. if someone copies one of my methods, I don't have to do it anymore. Mm-hmm. I can go on to the next thing. Mm-hmm. I think you talked about in one of your lectures about how the cyclist was laying down and then is able to speed ahead of ahead of everybody else. And then the guy on the moped sees the idea, then he copies it. And you said, well, here's the scary part is after you innovate, you can't just stop there. You have to keep innovating, right? You have to keep that's pushing right. towards the edge. And then I, but I also said, and that's the good news, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That there are a lot of people who would like it to be once and done. You know, you climb Mount Everest once and you get to be famous for the rest of your life. And that might've been true for Sir Edmund Hillary and um, his Sherpa, but it's not true for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. because the Internet catches up too fast. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance that when when you achieve something and you push the boundary and you surprise yourself and others and then you quickly realize that's now you have to go on to the next thing? How do you take in that moment to celebrate it and then move on without feeling like depressed that now you have another thing to do? Well, I don't know how you feel about lunch, but the way I feel about lunch is I try to do it every day. Mm-hmm. And, when, <laughs> and when lunch is over, I don't get depressed. I right. just start planning tomorrow's lunch. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think some of us could probably skip a lunch, but uh, <laughs> yes, you're right. Fantastic. Okay. Um, well, I got to tell you guys, you know, there's almost 400 people watching, and I'm going to say roughly about 75% have a new haircut now because they want to tap into the secrets of your success. <laughs> So everybody's going out and buying Gillette razors and, and, and doing a new do. That's right. Only Love successful it. people are bald. That's just 100%. 100%. <laughs> yes. And you have to have funky glasses, too. So that's, that's right. Yeah. That's and possibly key. wear a suit. Yep. Possibly. Okay. Uh, just on a lighter note, lighter note, so people can process what they've heard thus far, because there's a lot of information that's already packed in here. On a lighter note, I know that you wear suits quite often. Do you have a favorite brand or tailor that you go to that you feel like this is the suit maker for me? Oh, I go through cycles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, about six months ago, I decided to switch to Lululemon. Oh, why did you do that? I don't know. I, you know, there was a, there was early on, there was an Armani cycle mm-hmm. because the suits used to fit me. Right. Yeah. And, um, 
Then there's this this uh, company in New York called My Suit that's cheap but custom. Mm-hmm. Did that for a little while, uh, but you know, I needed to wear a suit for a long time because I worked at home by myself, and so for 15 years I went to work sort of naked, and so I made a rule, which is if I'm going to leave the house for work, I'm going to wear a suit, like one extreme or the other. Mm-hmm. Naked or suit. But now <laughs> the whole world has gotten way more casual. Right. I got other people here in the office with me. So it feels to me like there are audiences I speak to where it's not necessarily appropriate to show mm-hmm. up in this. And I thought, all right, time for a shift. So I shifted. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. My wife is a fan of Lululemon, so she brings me there. And I don't practice yoga or anything like that. I'm actually quite inflexible. But she showed me some of their jackets and their clothing. And it seems like it's kind of, you can wear it in a casual place. You can go to the gym in it. And you can also go to the board meeting, which is fantastic if you travel a lot because you don't want to pack a lot of clothes with you. Right. So I find and you can do clothes- all that without even taking a shower in between. <laughs> <laughs> I would caution some of the young listeners to definitely shower. Some of you guys think a little bit. All right. Okay. Um, I have another question here. I guess you've, you've touched on this and you've said this before. Whoever fails the most wins. So are you a winner because you failed a lot? Well, if I'm a winner, it's because I failed a lot. Yes. Yeah. Now, the, the key to that sentence is understanding that if you fail too big, mm-hmm. you don't get to play anymore. Oh, so that means you're not going to fail the most. So part of failing the most is strategically failing at the right scale. So when I was a book packager, I would send out, you know, uh, a proposal, 30 proposals a month, 20 proposals a month, 40 proposals a month to different people. And if any of them didn't work, I was only out 50 cents. That's really different than being a real estate developer betting everything you own on a building that sits vacant because now you're out of the game. Right. And so my mon- my mindset here is find a space where you get to play for a while long enough that you can get good at it by failing and make it so that your failures serve a purpose. They're not annoying other people. They're done in the service of generosity. Mm. I love that. I mean, the the original sentiment was pretty powerful, but what you just did there to kind of expand on that is to teach us to make small calculated risks so that Mm -hmm. you can be in the game long enough to succeed. Because I guess a failure is, a true failure is like your final failure where you have to end and give up, right? Fail small. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Okay. Uh, Let's see here. Ben, you have another good question from our audience on YouTube? Yeah. Seth, this comes from Chris Anthony. What is the biggest mistake that people make when they're trying to craft a story or storytelling? Um, I would say two. The first one is they don't try to craft a story. But the second one is that they do it without empathy. They think people care about them. They think people believe what they believe, want what they want, know what they know. And what practical empathy is, is the generous act of realizing that other people don't know what you know, don't want what you want, and that's okay. And then going to them based on their worldview and telling them a story that fits into the way they see the world. Because if you can't get enrollment from them, they're not going to listen to you. And so that's the heart of telling a useful story, not an authentic story, because I think authentic is way overrated, but useful, what a professional would do 
which is telling the story to a, to a person in a way that they can use it to move forward. Whoa, I have to, that's Man. a lot for me to process there. <laughs> Usually I'm pretty good on these shows, but it's it's too dense. It's because it's because we just went right heavy. into the deep end. Oh my god! Straight gosh. off the high dive. Well, because wow. so many people talk about trying to be authentic, and now he's like, hey, forget about authenticity, yeah. just be useful. Well, let me tell you what I mean by that. Okay, right? please. So if you need um, a haircut, I'm told, you have to go to, <laughs> you have to, go to <laughs> and if you get there, and you've gone all the way across town. You don't want the barber to say, oh, I really don't feel like cutting your hair. Mm -hmm. I just had a fight with my girlfriend. No, be a barber because you promised you were going to be a barber. I don't really care whether you're having a bad day. I hired you to have a good day mm -hmm. right now with me. That is what it means to be a professional. Mm -hmm. There is a tiny, tiny group of people on the Internet who make a living bearing their soul, right? That's a form of entertainment, but that's not for the rest of us. For the rest of us, authenticity, like what did you feel like this morning? Right. I don't care. I just know you told me you could make a change happen for me. You promised me something might happen. I'm interested. Let's do it. Mm -hmm. That is a professional's work. That's not the work of, ah, I don't feel like it. Right. Well, this that's a perfect segue into something I heard on your podcast which is you go in to tell us the history of like why a writer's block or creator's block was uh, how it was invented. And you say, oh, well, plumber doesn't have that luxury. He doesn't have plumber's block. He can't just show up and say, I'm not <laughs> feeling like unclogging your drain. Can you expand on this idea that writer's block is just a, a thing that we got to get over? All right. So I got to tell you, okay. I went to see a movie this weekend mm -hmm. called um, Can You Ever Forgive Me, which is really good, mm -hmm. really. And in it, the main character goes to a party of a bunch of authors, like an agent's party at a fancy apartment. Mm -hmm. And there's this blowhard pontificating at the party on and on quoting me without using my exact words about how writer's block is a myth. Mm. And after about 30 seconds of it, she turns and says, what a jackass. And walks out. <laughs> <laughs> this is on the movie. Yeah. Oh my and God. My wife thought it. My wife thought it was hysterical. Yeah. Anyway, um, I'm, I may be a jackass, but I'm correct. Mm. Writer's block is a myth. Okay. And what does that mean? It means that that feeling that we have when we say we can't write is really the feeling we have when we say we can't write anything that's perfect. That we mm. are certainly capable of writing poorly. No one has writing poorly block. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so if you write poorly enough, your brain will give up and sooner or later you will start writing well. And so I take umbrage at people who say, I don't know how you do that. How do you write? Like, no, no one says that to a plumber. No one says, oh, how did you find the energy to fix a toilet? It's like, <laughs> that's what you do. So go ahead and write. If you want to write poorly, write poorly. If you want to tell me, you have writer's block. First, show me all your bad writing. If you can show me 50,000 words of bad writing, then maybe I'll tell you you're not a writer. But until you've done 50,000 words of bad writing, you have no idea if you're a writer or not. We'll be right back with more from Seth Godin.
Good design work should clearly communicate a message. The same is true for good designers. So why present flat, lifeless product ideas? Put an interactive prototype in the hands of your manager, client, or CEO, and watch their eyes light up as they buy into your vision. Framer is your secret weapon. Start from scratch or import from another design tool. Drag and drop powerful interactive components, set up transitions, and create your own stunning animations, all without code. It's rich, realistic prototyping made easy. Sign up for free or get 20% off any paid plan by visiting framer.com slash the future. That's framer.com slash the future. Welcome back to our conversation with Seth Godin. I think I can speak on behalf of a lot of designers that are listening to this who, and I've had part of my team tell me this, Chris, we just can't turn on the creativity whenever. I just, <coughs> I have to be inspired to make this thing. And I think part of that no. comes from their fear of, right. I don't want to do something that you're going to judge me and I'm only as good exactly. as my last piece of work. And so I'd rather sit here and do nothing. And we've run experiments exactly. like this with groups that we coach where we say half of you guys just make a piece of artwork every single day and the other half make one masterpiece and of course we already know the outcome of this the people who do something every single day wind up making masterpieces in just the daily pursuit and sure. most of the people who were asked to make a masterpiece missed the deadline yep they never finished hmm. and you were like saying like somebody wants to comment on this yeah so this is a question from darren by design He's, he asked, how do you overcome that fear of sharing what you know? How do you overcome this quest, quest for perfection? Is it because you don't. He, Oh, sorry, go ahead. You don't. It can't be, you cannot overcome it. You can dance with it. Hmm. And the harder you try to overcome it, the more you're giving it power. Because what it means to overcome it is you are saying, I will be creative as soon as I get a standing ovation from my brain. And your brain will not give you a standing ovation because it's afraid. So what you have to say is, I will be creative, especially when my brain is freaking out that every day at four o'clock, I'm going to ship something. And if you make that commitment and keep doing it, then you will become creative. Perfect. Everybody in the comments is like, hashtag procrastination army. Hashtag, <laughs> I'm so guilty of this. <laughs> it's touching a nerve for sure. Yeah. So you guys, you don't have any more excuses. You got to get over it. You got to stop using mentors as a crutch and saying you aren't where you were supposed to be because nobody will help you. And there are a lot of heroes there out there that you can learn from today. Okay, I, in, I have to admit, in, in doing research for the show, I'm watching a lot of your talks, and I come across your, your conversation with Gary Vaynerchuk. And from the outsider and also reading the comments, there was a lot of people angry at Gary for asking you questions and cutting you off. But I watched it several times. At first, I thought, I think Seth is pissed off. He says, I'm going to walk out on you. But then you're still smiling, and you guys are still hugging and touching each other, and everything seems to be okay. So... Can you clear the air for us? Are you mad at Gary? What's going on there? Oh, I'm not mad at Gary. Mm -hmm. Gary was being Gary. Back to this idea of authenticity and being a professional. Do you think that Gary's like that all the time, everywhere he goes? No. Gary is Gary playing the role of Gary. Mm -hmm. I know that, and he knows that. And we're fine. It's great. It's not professional wrestling, or I guess maybe it is. <laughs> professional wrestling is playing a role, too. Right. 
And um, so, but there was one point in there, he started talking about something where I did seem, I, I, or I thought I saw a real reaction from you about when it came to science, you're like, no, yeah. let's not get into superstition. This is science and that's science and that's it. Exactly. Because it's, that's not a laughing matter. Mm -hmm. That's not something to fool around with. It's a matter of life and death. Mm -hmm. and so people are totally entitled to their own opinion, right? but they're not entitled to their own facts. Mm. And facts are what got us here. I mean, you and I are 3,000 miles away, connected by satellite for free, talking to each other on machines that would have cost $10 million right. 15 years ago, all of which were based on facts. And I don't want to give facts up. I don't want to give up the facts that gave us clean water and that gave us all the benefits that we've gotten. That yeah. People who are watching this did not wake up this morning wondering if their kids were going to die of food poisoning. And I'm really glad that that's true. Mm. Okay, perfect. Thanks for clearing that up because there was a lot of speculation and videos made after the fact, analyzing play by play what was <laughs> happening. Not a very good analysis, by the way. So there, you guys heard it from Seth's mouth. Okay, uh, there's a hard transition here. I want to ask you a different question. And I believe what you believe, I think, in, in this whole idea of education system being created like this factory thing to make compliant, obedient workers uh, to exploit them for their labor, I think. And I was asked this question during a talk, and I, I didn't have a great answer, so I'm pretty sure you're going to have a much better answer than, than I did. So you went to Stanford. You're a, a well-studied person. You've gone through education. You, you read prolifically. And so if you are a part of that system, how would you have turned out if you weren't part of that system? Because we're talking about changing the system or at least asking the question of what school is for. Sure. Well, first I'll say this. If you are super lucky like me and you have support from amazing parents and you get a pretty good head start, which gets you the magic grades, which gets you into a super famous college that you can afford to go to, knowing that you are going so you could get a job at Bain or McKinsey or Accenture or Goldman Sachs, and that's what you want, then you should go. That going to one of the top five business schools is the single highest yield way you can make a lot of money if you want to be a management consultant who flies around the world or someone who moves pile from money from one pile to another. Mm -hmm. But for everybody else, it's a massive waste of $250,000 in tuition and opportunity cost. And you don't have to take my word for it. We've got tons of data about this. Here's one fascinating one that I got from... Uh, I believe Malcolm Gladwell or a book about Harvard, one or the other, which is this. If you look at people who got into Harvard and went and you compare them to people who got into Harvard and didn't go, both groups are equally happy and equally well off. Wow. Whoa. So what does that tell you, right? What it tells you is there's a sorting mechanism that's going on and sometimes an imprimatur can pay off. But four years is a really long time. And uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. You know, what happened to me as an undergrad, the thing that mattered the most to me in college by far is I co-founded with three other people what became the largest student-run business in America. We had 400 employees at a college with 4,000 students in it. And I started a new division every week. So we had a birthday cake service and a a ticket bureau and a coffee shop and a temporary employment agency 
and a bagel delivery service and on and on and on. And I only got paid 50 bucks a week to do it because it was semi-related mm -hmm. to the school, the sense that we got their insurance and stuff. But that act of when I didn't have to pay rent and when I didn't have to support a family that I could start a new business all the time. That's what I got out of college more than anything. And so what I say to people is if you're going because you think you can comply your way to success, keep getting an A until when you get to the placement office, you get the ultimate A, which is you get picked for a great job. And then you do a, an A-level job there and you move up and you move up and you move up. Well, you're living in 1961. That, that, that's left the building. Instead, figure out how to build a life with low enough overhead where you can be a creator of ruckuses, the kind of person that goes into the world and makes things better by making better things over and over again, because that's how you're going to learn how to fail. That's how you're going to learn how to solve interesting problems. And then the world will start a line at your door instead of you having to get picked by them, they're going to say, please help me with this problem. And that's what we need to be known by. We need to be known by our work, not our resume. Mm. Woo. Ben, you had another question? I have more questions and I'm, I'm just so nervous because I'm, I'm watching the timer countdown and the, it feels like sand slipping through my fingers there, Ben. <laughs> uh, I, I do want to talk about this a little bit. You talked about how Henry Ford was able to do something rather remarkable. He was able to take a person who was getting paid, I think, $5 a day at that time and got them to be paid $50 because he taught them a specific skill that they can make and learn how to make profit off of that. And actually, I, it, was, it was 50 cents to five dollars. I'm sorry, yeah, 50 cents exactly. to five dollars. It was it was a gigantic jump. And right. so it, it was that a good thing that has happened or is that a, not a good thing? Oh, it totally changed the world. Mm -hmm. It changed the world in a whole bunch of ways. Mm -hmm. The bad news is it paved the planet. The good news is it went to a whole bunch of people who were used to scraping by and it made them middle class. Not only did Ford's employees become middle class able to send their kids to school through 12th grade, able to buy a house. But it raised the bar because it meant if you wanted to compete for those workers, you had to do the same thing. So Henry Ford, more than anybody, is responsible for inventing the middle class of America. So that's really good. The magic of industrialism is how productive it made people. We went from a car needing, I don't know, $3,000, $4,000 worth of labor to a car needing $200 worth of labor mm -hmm. because it was so efficient. But the thing is, that was a long time ago. Once you get to 200, you can't get to 20 until it's all robot-based. And at 20, that means there's no one to do the work. So the industrial thing is over now, that everything is so cheap and so perfect it's really unlikely you're going to make a lot of money working on an assembly line doing industrial work because we found a computer to do it instead. And so the new revolution is the one that says, wait a minute, everyone has a keyboard. Everyone is one click away. So here you are talking to people around the world and none of them have met you before. So you've built this resource without a building, without millions of dollars. If you add a zero to that number, 
it will make an even bigger difference to people. You add two zeros to that number, you'll be independently wealthy. And so the question is, how will human beings enter this connection economy without too many scars left over from the industrial economy? Mm -hmm. You know, this relates to a great question that we have from the comments. This, again, comes from uh, Jasvir Sidhu. He asks, how do we integrate that education and learning into the workplace without disrupting things like deadlines and productivity, things like that? Well, there's no chance you're not going to disrupt everything. I mean, isn't that what happened when Henry Ford showed up? When Henry Ford showed up, there were 2,300 car companies in the United States. Think about that. Wow. He killed them all. Because here he was selling $600 cars and his competitors were selling $3,000 cars. Boom, they were all gone. Henry Ford was not a hero to the people who ran 2,300 car companies. And so the same thing is true. You know, if you, if you look at what does a newsroom look like, you know, go, go look at all the president's men or even spotlight. The newspaper used to be organized a certain way. But when you take away the paper and you take away the need for everyone to be in the same building, what does a newspaper look like today? I think it looks a lot like what we're doing right now. Right, right. So all of a sudden people say, well, you've disrupted everything. And I'm like, yeah, we have. Do you get called upon by companies to help them to innovate their way out of the box? Like you were mentioning newspaper companies and tradi traditional publishing companies are having a hard time making this digital jump. And so I see yeah. you out there saying, hey, guys, this is the problem. Everybody wake up. Do they right. call you in and say, hey, help us out, Seth? Well, I don't do any consulting at all. Okay. I never have. And the reason is I would think if I took someone's money, I'd better be able to solve their problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I can solve their problem. I think I can describe the problem. I think I can tell them how I would solve the problem, but it's up to them to solve it. So instead, you know, I spoke to the newspaper publishers of America 22 years ago, mm -hmm. and I described in detail how they were all going to disappear. And I didn't do it to be mean to them. I did it to them with them because it wasn't too late. And I'm not always successful because what we know from the innovator's dilemma is that successful companies are usually the last ones to do giant leaps forward right? because they don't want to give up what they already got. And by the time they don't have it anymore, it's too late. Mm. Well, as a person who talks about catering to the edge and paying attention to what happens on the edge, do you write and do you make content because you want to be that that uh, light tower for companies to say, like, wow, he's seeing something and you're connecting things, like you notice things as what you've said before, so that they can hopefully save themselves and the many people that depend on them on making the right decisions. Yeah, most of what I do is not on the edge. It's um, not, okay. You know, in 92, when I started an email company, I mm -hmm. was on the edge because mm -hmm. almost no one had email. Mm -hmm. And in 98, 99, when I wrote Permission Marketing, it was super controversial. Uh, if you look at the response to the new book, there aren't very many people saying I'm a wild-eyed crazy person. And that's because over time, innovators have the choice to move through the curve to reach more people, or they can stay as innovators. So if we look at a company like Apple, for 25 years, it was a company where their customers were nerds early adopters and edge cases. Mm -hmm. 
And since Steve has died, Tim has chosen to, choose to change the company to one that almost never innovates in a significant way, but instead offers a different kind of upside to a different kind of user. And so as I am shifting more and more to being a teacher, my goal is not to say something so revolutionary that no one ever thought of it before. My goal is to talk about things that are important in ways that people can understand in ways they haven't understood before. Mm, okay. I guess, is, is that the arc that you're out on the edge and then you say things that are pretty radical and eventually you, you take those ideas and you help to kind of spread them towards the middle? Is that what happens? Yeah, well, because, because I'm a teacher, mm -hmm. I didn't take the posture of saying, how do I always look for a new thing? Mm -hmm. I believe the revolution started in 1990 we're only, you know, 28 years into it. And this is our revolution. And I've been chronicling it for those many years. Mm -hmm. So the revolution is getting a little less revolutionary because the revolution is connection. That's it. So I keep writing and talking about what does it mean that we can now connect to all the data in the world, to all the people in the world, to all the workers in the world, to all the customers in the world. That's my thesis, mm -hmm. and my thesis has been the same for 28 years. Mm. Well, I, I really admire how you're able to go out there and write and share what you know. So I have a question as uh, in terms of your process when you're, when you're giving a keynote, because I've been watching many of them. I'm curious about how you prepare for these things. I have my own theories, but I'd like for you to talk about that if you, if you, uh, if you can. All right, so something I innovated about 25 years ago is mm -hmm. a different way to use PowerPoint. And I wrote a book called Really Bad PowerPoint, a booklet. And in it, I said, you should never put bullets in a PowerPoint presentation. Because if you want to give me words, send me a memo. PowerPoint is great at showing me pictures. And then I can say the words with my voice, or I can send you a memo. So now I can go to both parts of your brain the part of your brain that's going to see the picture of the cow in the pasture mm -hmm. and the part of your brain that's going to hear the words about what that means. And so my presentation now, it changes every time, but it has between 150 and 250 slides in it that I cover in 45 or 50 minutes. And so every one of those pictures reminds me of a story. And I tell the story differently every time, depending on who I'm talking to, mm -hmm. right? But so that's my template. Now, one out of every five times, that's not what I do. One out of every five times, I either don't use any slides at all or do all new-ish material. Mm -hmm. But most of the people who hire me to give a talk would prefer I do something that works as opposed to something that has never been tested before. Right. So that's what I do. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't bore me that I have greatest hits. Yeah, It pleases me that I have greatest hits. And I feel like I can deliver those greatest hits in a way that's coherent, that fits in with my new ideas and my old ones, mm -hmm. and that resonate with people. And what I have found is even people who have seen my stuff more than once, and I would put you in that category, don't say to me, it's boring the second time, which is what they'd be saying if I was a comedian. But they say to me, oh, I saw something in this the second time I didn't realize that was there. Right. And so that's what I'm trying to do is open the door 
for people to have a conversation after I leave. Mm -hmm. I would like to change what happens around the conference room table after I'm done. So I have so many questions because as a person, you're so prolific in, in writing and creating content. I see these slides and you were able to find both obscure stories about people and some strange slides that get everybody to laugh, like the sign with the the bird, the seagull with a cross, like no <laughs> seagulls, and there's a seagull on top. Like, do you have an assistant that digs these things up or you just start to collect these images knowing that somewhere yeah. in your life you're going to be able to tell a story about that? First of all, I need to make this really clear. I don't have an assistant. Okay. I have never had an assistant. If you see my words or my work, I did it. Mm -hmm. That's important to me. Let me tell you a little bit about the seagull picture. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know where I found the seagull picture. I fell in love with it immediately and I've been using it ever since. But I wanted a higher resolution version of it because it's a little grainy. Right. So about five summers ago, I went and I made a commercially graded sign of the pigeon with the slash through it. Mm -hmm. I put on a commercial grade stick and I went to the beach in New Jersey and I covered the top of it with breadcrumbs <laughs> and I put the stick in the sand yeah and i took my camera and i waited for a seagull to land on top and start eating the breadcrumbs and i sat there for half an hour and i couldn't get a seagull <laughs> uh, seagulls don't like breadcrumbs or something <laughs> and so what happened so i still use the old one. Oh my god <laughs> i tell you what seth uh just as a token of our appreciation for you coming on the show if you send me that sign we will take care of that for you. <laughs> and I'll get a seagull on there one way or the other. With Photoshop magic or one way or the other, I will give you, I promise you, a high-resolution image so that you can <laughs> tell that joke in full high-resolution HD, quad HD fidelity. Okay? We can do that. Okay, that was fantastic. So the other thing is I noticed that that talk that you gave, the TED Talk, and I know TED Talks are very rehearsed and they, they work on all this stuff with you. They didn't I, used to be. Is that right? They, we didn't know they were going to be on video. It was a secret. No one knew. Oh, it was like a secret, like in the back room they were filming you? No, they filmed, there were, there were cameras, mm -hmm. but, you know, Richard Saul Werman started TED 30 years ago and it was only for 300 people. It was a dinner party and all of the old ones, right? Um, Sir Ken Robinson, the number one yep. most popular mm -hmm. one, my first TED talk, uh, I can name dozens of them none of those people knew it was going to be broadcast because none of them had ever been broadcast. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It wasn't until 90, 2004 or five that Chris started putting them on the internet. And we all have such big egos that when someone saw their video on the internet, like, good for me, no one complained, Right. but no one knew that they were being, that it was going to be a thing. I see. No one. Mm -hmm. So they filmed them for posterity. And then later on they released it thinking, well, was that idea worth sharing or spreading, then we exactly. should share it and spread it. And so it goes beyond the 300 people. Okay. So I'm watching that video, stop stealing dreams. And then I, I searched for that because I was trying to recap for the show. And then I see that you have a medium post on that and it goes through the entire thing. So one of my questions is I, I always am in awe of writers when they give a presentation, because it feels like every word, every joke, every pause has been thought out and worked out in advance. Is that the case with you? Do you, kind of know no. the structure. So what happened with that one mm -hmm. is I wrote a 50 to 80,000 word rant, which you can still read online for free. It's been downloaded 4 million times. 
called Stop Stealing Dreams. It's it's excellent. Everybody download that. I'll include the link in the description later. Thanks. Um, and then I got a call from this school in Brooklyn doing a TEDx. Will you come talk about it? Oh, I see. And I gave that talk exactly once. Mm -hmm. And I've never given it since. And I practiced it for half an hour before I went. Wow. Okay. Because yes. this, the reason I'm telling you that is not because I'm bragging. I'm telling you that because a presentation is a transfer of emotion. Mm. And if you're going to practice it and practice it and practice it, just send me a memo instead. Because people can tell. I'd rather be present and explaining myself. Like I didn't rehearse this conversation with you today. Right. But I don't regret what I've said because I'm present. I'm here. I see you. I see your team. And I'm doing my best to communicate. That's what we need more of. We don't need polished, timed punchlines. I love that you said that. Wow. I really do. And it's even scarier now that you said that because I don't <laughs> know if you helped me or hurt me. Because <laughs> I was thinking, my God, that's what all the professionals do. They show up. They're prepared. And they've written it all out. And there's many people who teach this process. And I don't want to start any beef between you and Simon Sinek because I look up to him as well. I saw that you were on a show together. But Simon, as I see him go from lecture venue to lecture venue, he has the exact same joke, the exact same pause. Even the awkward phrasing and the stuttering is all built into it. And he's fantastic. So I was sitting there thinking, I'm doing this all wrong. I'm using yeah. the slides like you say. They're prompts for me to talk and tell the story. But then sometimes I don't tell it exactly the way I thought it was going to play out right. in my mind. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to interrupt because we don't have a lot of time. Yes, I'll we do about Simon. Three things. First, okay. he's in the CIA. Don't tell him I told you. Okay. Second, um, I've seen him give a talk with no notes that he did not prepare for until two minutes before he got there. Mm -hmm. And he's great at it. Yeah. Um, but the third thing is I gave 200 talks, 100 talks that I paid money to give before anyone ever hired me to give a speech. Mm -hmm. So you're going to need to practice a lot. Yeah. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's like your thing about blogging, mm -hmm. writing yeah. every single day until you get something good. Okay. Right. I know we're short on time, so I have to talk to you about the Alt-MBA. Can you tell us what the Alt-MBA and what you're trying to do with it? So after Stop Stealing Dreams, I started thinking really hard about how I could help change education. Mm -hmm. What would be a version that I could bring forward as an example? So we launched the Alt-MBA two years ago. It's a four-week intensive workshop. It's elite. It's hard. You have to apply to get in. It's not cheap. You can be in any one of the 44 countries we support. We have coaches and video conferencing. We do not have me. I am not in it. Okay. There's no video. It's project-based. But what happens in those four weeks is you give more feedback than you've ever given in your life. You get more feedback. You learn to see things differently. You learn to ship. You learn to be engaged with projects. And at the end of the month, you say, I can't believe I got that much done. And so it changes the story you tell yourself which lets you change the story you tell other people. And we were only going to run it once, but we've run it 26 times so far. And we will keep running it as long as really passionate people show up hoping to level up. Mm -hmm. If I'm considering enrolling in the course and applying to the system, who is it for ideally? How much does it cost? It costs 3,800 bucks. Um, oh, that's very reasonable. For? Well, yeah, I think so. I think it's a screaming bargain, but it's also more than a $12 Udemy course. Right. So it depends on what you're comparing it to. Mm -hmm. uh, 
who's it for? It doesn't matter where you live, how much money you make, how old you are, or what your job is. We don't care about any of those things. What we care about is, are you thirsty? Are you passionate? Are you generous? Are you interested in getting to the next level? And the application is really simple. It takes five minutes, but we can tell right away what kind of people you are. And if you're our kind of people, we would love to have. Mm -hmm. Somebody runs this part for you then? The administrative so process? Team and um, our provost is in Toronto, our bursars and uh, project organizers here in New York. So we have 80 coaches around the world. All of them are alumni, every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And so there isn't a, a place. We are everywhere. And I am still involved, but I am not present as a teacher. Mm. Fantastic. Okay. I know you have to run. So I'm going to say a few things before we say goodbye to Seth. Uh, and I also want to say he's a trooper because he's sick. I'm sick. We're both doing the show. This is what professionals do. We show up. And I didn't know that this dropped today, so I changed this. Uh, book number 19, This Is Marketing, written by Seth Godin, drops today. And it, this will be sold on Amazon or directly through your site, Seth? No, I, it's published by Penguin. It went to the top 25 on Amazon. Today, oh, fantastic. So, so again, right we'll include that link in the description below. I want to thank you, the sustaining members. This is how you get in touch with Seth. He's at This Is Seth's blog on Twitter. And if you want to read some of his writing, uh, uh, you go to sets.blog and also sethgodin.com. Seth, thank you very much for coming on our show. Really appreciate it. What a privilege. You guys are true professionals. It was really fun. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for joining us in this episode. If you're new to the future and want to know more about our educational mission, visit thefuture.com. You'll find more podcast episodes, hundreds of YouTube videos, and a growing collection of online courses and products covering design and business. Oh, and we spell the future with no E. The Future Podcast is hosted by Christo and produced by me, Greg Gunn. This episode was mixed and edited by Anthony Barrow with intro music by Adam Sanborn. If you enjoyed this episode, then do us a favor and rate and review us on iTunes. It's a tremendous help in getting our message out there. And, you know, let us know what you like. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.